Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, New Lessons from Leads, Streamlining Non-Invasive Testing Algorithms. In this conversation, Ian Rowe discusses a screening protocol he shared last fall, FIB4, then ELF, only then FibroScan. His research since last fall showed surprising results about how often ELF actually avoided the need for FibroScan and has tailored his protocol accordingly. It's worth noting that Ian's approach reflected to some degree cost issues that might be different in health systems other than the UK. Ian is doing challenging and important work. You'll want to hear this. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, hepatologist and hepatology researcher Dr. Ian Rowe of the University of Leeds, UK, as they discuss some findings from Dr. Rowe and his colleague, Dr. Richard. Parker that confound conventional wisdom this week on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Just to start, you mentioned a progression from FIB4 to ELF and then on to transient elastography, right? What have you learned about that process? So when we put that process in place, we did so for a couple of reasons. One is that we thought it was going to be efficient so that there would be easy testing from FIB4 to ELF. Um, and I think as time has gone on, it's become easier, but it still required quite a lot of education in the primary care community that you needed to do both tests before there was a referral for additional testing. And we also did it because we recognized that access to transient elastography or fiber scan in our case was restricted in terms both of the location at that point in that the patients were having to come to the hospital for it, but also in the number of scanners that we had and the number of people we had to run them. So we thought that it would be more efficient. What we've found though is that with the thresholds that we've used, the number of patients who are being reassured by the ELF is relatively low. So we were hoping that at a threshold of 9.5, we would be able to screen out a lot of patients who wouldn't then need to come for additional investigations. But that's not what we found, particularly in the metabolic fatty liver perspective. It's turned out that we've screened out relatively a relatively small number of patients, in fact, probably between 30 and 40% of people who've come for an ELF test after a FIB4 that was not low, which has meant that in the remaining 60 to 70%, we've still had to go on and do Fibroscan, um, which because of the, the costs, at least that we are paying for the testing, there's probably not a big cost difference between the two tests. So unless you're excluding a lot of people with the ELF, it doesn't, it doesn't really make a great deal of sense because we end up essentially paying twice for the same information. And the way that this pathway is set up, it's set up in a way that we you know, you could probably infer from the way it's set up that we believe that Fibroscan is a better test than ELF. We're using it really as the arbiter test. And and so if we're having to do that better test for a large majority of people, it perhaps makes sense for us to think about doing it for everybody. So the conclusion would be that you might go straight from FIB4 to Fibroscan without stopping at ELF. Is that how that would work? Yeah. So I think, well, that's one way of doing it. And that's certainly in the in the metabolic fatty liver population. It works a bit better in the alcohol-related liver disease population, their ELF scores tend to be quite a bit higher. So there's much less in that sort of relatively grayer area. But what we don't really want to do, we don't want to have different pathways for different liver disease. 
users. And that's been one of the things that has that has sort of developed a bit around the stratification pathways that have been published for, for NAFL particularly. And that is that they are just for NAFLs and they're not for the other liver diseases. And we want to try and have a single point of entry so that, you know, you have an abnormal test, you have a fibrosis test, and then you come into the service. And it shouldn't matter whether it's NAFL or alcohol-related liver disease or viral hepatitis or any of the other liver diseases, because all of those patients are at risk of developing liver failure and complications. So we, you know, we want to try and make it as simple as it can be um, for primary care so that we see the right patients at the right time. Okay, so Stephen, Louise? I find it fascinating, and I totally agree with Ian's last statements there. I think it can be way too complicated to find a patient, to stick to one paradigm and one pathway, and then look for a different one, keeping it simple. And I think I use Stephen's KISS, keep it simple, stupid analogy all of the time, particularly during vaccinations that we try to make way too complicated, but make it simple. For me, I would always do the funnel test, which let's pick up, do we have abnormal stiffness? Do we have abnormal fat? Which pathways can they go through as part of that pathway? It's very, very simple. Elfness for all of these new algorithms are making it more and more complicated. And the one thing that doesn't float a patient's boat is an algorithm. And I wondered, and I just wanted to ask Ian, what was it that made the fibre scan better than ELF? Was it more than purely the diagnostic testing? Was it actually the behavioural interaction that you got with patients that engaged with it? Were there other benefits that you saw? So, so that's an interesting question, and and in fact, we've we don't have any information about the the downstream aspects of what's happened because of COVID. We haven't been seeing patients on the same day as their imaging, and they've just really just been coming for the scan and going away again. And we talked a few weeks ago about that teachable moment, and I think and that is one aspect of the service that we're currently missing. But it is one that's more easily delivered at the time of elastography, or you know, or very shortly afterwards. This is like fascinating because you're you're playing out something in real life that we model in, in data sets all the time. So one of the, whether it's litmus, nimble, farm, very large pharmaceutical data sets where we have lots of baseline data and we're trying to make predictive scores. All these things have kind of been looked at. We've looked at diagnosing the at-risk NASH patient by FIB4 followed by FibroScan, FIB4 followed by ELF, ELF followed by FibroScan, AST plus FibroScan, FAST, MAST, MRI plus AST plus MRE. All these things have been looked at. CT1 is another one in your neck of the woods where Perspectum has made lots of effort to try to become that diagnostic test of choice. So it's incredibly insightful to get your boots on ground, real world experience. And I guess I would say are you seeing are you seeing similar situations in each of those three clinics as it pertains to elf not being as stratifying or gratifying for that perspective you know for me fib4 is interesting because it wasn't really designed for its negative predictive value it was designed to find f3 and f4 patients originally in co-infected hep c hiv patients and then kind of repurposed by richard Sterling at BCU for, for Nash. What we're finding is every single one of these tests have a, a very effective negative predictive value. So in essence, you're trying to pull a bunch of very good negative predictive values into a tool that gives you good positive predictive value. And what what's the right sequence to do that? What's the right cost-effective model to make that happen? So maybe just focusing on your diabetics, you know, it seems like in our studies, when we enrich for diabetics, we're enriching for a NASH population that has fibrosis. And I would expect 
that the positive predictive values would be better than if you were just screening a general clinic? There's a few issues in there. So we do see differences in the yield from ELF between particularly the alcohol group, where it's quite pretty good, actually, probably because they've got more they've got more fibrosis, I think, and the sort of the diabetes and obesity group. And we haven't looked separately between pure diabetes group and a group with only with obesity and other metabolic risk factors. So we haven't we haven't done that. So I don't know. But I, the, the yield in, in the sort of diabetes enriched group is not, I don't think that's going to be recoverable by sort of purifying further um, to try and improve the, the sort of the yield of significant fibrosis in a more NASH type population. And I think the point you make about combining tests with good negative predictive value in the hope that you'll come to a good positive predictive value is a bit like, you know, is a bit where we are. We, you know, we, we're, we're sort of struggling and we probably need to, we probably need to think about what the, what the right thresholds are for what it is that we want to achieve because you know as as hepatologists what we want to do is to stop people developing you know cirrhosis and the complications and and without as yet good interventions in the commonest liver diseases to do that we're sort of we're a bit stuck because we you know we're trying to work within the gray zone of the assays trying to get to a, a better population for more testing and treatment but understanding that that the sort of treatment aspect of it isn't you know isn't fully crystallized so we can't tell what the benefit of really digging into that gray zone population is you know once that treatment's there it'll be a bit easier to understand the value proposition of digging into that gray zone a bit more about where the threshold should be and what additional testing would be appropriate and when at the moment where a lot of our interventions at the general hepatology sense are all in cirrhosis it probably makes good sense to have the thresholds quite high you know so one of the approaches that we could take would be to put the L threshold up to 10.5 and say you know we're not interested unless there really is a lot of fibrosis and there's something that we can offer but we risk then missing earlier disease that we could intervene on you know that's the payoff at the moment about trying to understand where you know where diagnosis should be and where it's best placed. I just was thinking about a conversation I was having with some of my colleagues about polygenic risk scores and really starting to get to where we can test for PMPLA3, TM6, SF2, GCKR, HSD17, beta 13. I'm thinking back to the data Rohit presented at NASHTAG and even a recent paper looking at polygenic risk scores to diagnose liver cancer in the setting of fatty liver. We know even by conservative estimates that 30, maybe 40% of HCC occurs outside the setting of NASH cirrhosis. It's, it's more than just a identifying who's likely to progress in fibrosis. It's can we also identify the number one reason for liver cancer in the U.S., in Italy, and I think it may be behind alcohol, but I, I think it's very high in the U.K. as well. And testing for single nucleotide polymorphisms actually is pretty pretty cheap. The problem is we haven't put together a commercial assay to, to do that. And And my guess is if we were able to do that and bring that to bear with you in your clinical practice, hey, let's do a FIB4. If it's positive, let's look at their genetic risk score and add that into whatever else you're going to do. Because my guess is you will enrich heavily for whatever you're looking for, whether it's liver cancer, progression to decompensation or cirrhosis, if, if you were enriched for that genetic variant. And like Nagachala Sani is routinely doing that in his clinic at Indiana. And, you know, he runs the assay there at Indiana. In his mind, it really adds a lot of value to what he's doing in his clinical practice as far as enriching a population that has evidence of progressive disease. So I just want to 
mention that, Ian, because I think I think there's legs in these polygenic risk scores, and I don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater because we don't have a commercial assay to do that. In the U.S., we can't commercially test for ELF routinely either. So that's not something that we're familiar with outside of a clinical trial. I guess that the, the looking for additional tests is all about trying to understand what the risk is to the patient. That's the missing piece in our jigsaw, I think, or one of the one of the missing pieces. And, you know, understanding what the baseline risk for the patient is today of future liver related events, whether it's cancer or decompensation, is really is really important. And, and that's one of the things that, you know, in terms of risk guided therapies that the cardiologists have, you know, with your framing and risk scores or your ASCVD scores, in terms of understanding what treatment benefit there is going to be in the coming you know 10 years or so and and if there are better ways and i think we do need better tests if there are better ways to identify that risk for now and for the next decade or two then i think that would be a really big step forward is the question then about throwing out the baby with the bathwater, or is it about making sure that you actually dedicate the right test to the right task i mean maybe the answer isn't always go to fiber scan right but the answer is to not go to fiber scan we would need a better more effective set of test the polygenic kinds of things that you're talking about Stephen. does that is that kind of where this goes? Well, so Ian said it well. He said, look, we're, we're not just ruling out people who don't have F3 and F4 disease. I mean, that's what FIB4 does. It rules out F3 and F4 disease. It doesn't pick up an F2. It, it's not ruling out an F2. It's not ruling out an F1. It's not ruling out a NASH that's a rapid fibrosis progressor. It's ruling out people that today have advanced liver disease. So, that's great, but what if it's an indeterminate test, right? I mean, that's the issue. We don't want to just leave those guys and say, come back in two years and let's retest you. Because what if that were an F4 that just was in the indeterminate, right? So we want to seek an answer to those patients. We know if it's high risk, great. We got a plan. If it's low risk, well, we tell them to lose weight and exercise and focus on their, their cardiac health and, and, and that sort of thing. But if they're in the middle, that's the conundrum that Ian, that Louise, that I have is what do we do with that population? And trying to sort that out and risk stratify those people is really the holy grail to sorting this whole business out. And as we talked about at the top of the hour, finding that right sequence is critical. We know that doing tests in parallel are not as good as doing them sequentially. Quentin Anstey showed us that out of Newcastle. But what is the right test? And, and ideally, it would be the same test applied across multiple populations, as Ian's also alluded to. Unfortunately, our tests aren't precise enough to give us that. And it may be the way they're developed, right? These are typically built off of linear regression analysis. We're looking at binary endpoints. It's a yes-no answer. Whereas artificial intelligence's neural networks are really continuous variables that allow for improved accuracy and precision modeling. And maybe we need to take what we've developed and put it back through the ringer of neural networks instead of just having a binary input. I remember when I developed the BARD score, that's what I did. I mean, I looked independently at what was predictive, ASTALT ratio, BMI over 28, presence of diabetes, and then we put it into a score based on a yes 
Yes, no. Is the AST, ALT ratio greater than or equal to 0.8? Do they have diabetes or not? Is the BMI greater than 28? Yes, no. And that's essentially what was done with the NAFLD fibrosis score, FIB4. Quentin Anstey did the same thing with ABC3D, where he just brought Pro-C3 into the same model. So anyway, there's. I think we're, we're going to be hampered by the, the fact that liver biopsy is an imperfect gold standard, and we're going to be hampered by the fact that our tests really have binary endpoints that are put into the development of the equation. And so to get around that, you have to bring in other variables, like maybe the genetic component that hasn't been really part of any of these uh, risk stratification scoring systems. Anything else to add on that point, or should we go on to the next one? I think that's a good place to close. I just thought when Stephen was talking there, that we predominantly, obviously, are always talking about the patients who have been diagnosed. Now, if we look at the global population of one in four people have fatty liver disease, around about 270 million have alcohol. We have one in 12 of the global population with a viral hepatitis. We are still talking about the needle in the haystack. So we have our known unknowns, which I would sort of say are the patients in the epidemiology studies. We know that one in four have that sort of thing. We have the known knowns, which are the ones we've actually diagnosed, those needles in the haystack. We've actually come up with something. The unknown knowns, they're sitting in our clinics in endocrinology and cardiology in rheumatology or in any other clinic that's got a liver disease, they've got a marker, they've got a high risk, but they're never investigated. And I suppose for me, it's about the unknown unknowns. What can we use to find the unknown unknowns? Because those are actually the ones fueling most of the services because they don't get found. Is that like Ian suggested earlier, a cardiology screening program? Do we have to say that liver disease is that fast and affects so many other areas that we have to look at a uniform screening to rule it out? And I don't think any liver fat is benign. I think we're seeing that in cardiology outcomes. So where do we go with this? Marzen showed very nicely last week the cost effectivity for over the age of 40 in diabetes. But We've not even looked at the cost effectivity in cardiovascular in that same age group who are now increasing in the mortality ranges in the UK. So I think Ian was right at the beginning when we just want anybody with liver disease. What are the best ways to discover the unknown unknowns, I suppose? This is one of the issues that I have. And when we set this this pathway up, we did it recognising that by using fibrosis testing early in the pathway, not that early, but still quite early, that most people will not come to us. And when we in these talk about liver disease, we talk about fibrosis. And that means that we are not really engaging with the with the vast majority of people who would be classified as having liver disease, as, as Louise described. And I think we as a community need to think about how we categorize patients and what we call them so that we get it right. Because we've talked on this podcast before about the drive that will come when a therapy becomes available in terms of diagnosis. And if we if we get it wrong, then the clinics are going to end up, or the demand for clinic space and for testing is going to go up really quickly. And we're going to be seeing a lot of the wrong patient group, people who are not going to be suitable for treatment because they don't have fibrosis. And I would argue don't have significant liver disease because they're not at risk at all, probably, of you know liver-related morbidity and mortality in the coming decade. So there's a real tension, I think, in the, in the whole of the field about what we do with this silent majority who are you know and in and in actual fact it's it's huge you know the iceberg is very big and it's not like an iceberg because most of it is submerged not just the usual ninth nearly
nearly all of it submerged and there's just that tiny cap that we have to focus on and our testing that comes in primary care is so blunt that a lot of what's under the water that we'll never need to see is referred for additional testing. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions or comments about it or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two other conversations from this episode. We will release our next episode on Wednesday, April 7th. Our guest will be Dr. Alina Allen of Mayo Clinic, who will discuss some of her work on the value of MRE in predicting three to five year progression for both cirrhotic and non-cirrhotic patients with Nash fibrosis. It's an excellent groundbreaking paper with importance for lots of the issues we've been discussing recently. So I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.